Good morning, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. Okay, can you everyone hear me? Good? Great. Okay. Hi, I'm Margaret Reed, and I am the moderator for today's um, session on school meals for all. I've gotten louder, right? Too loud? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, exploring global initiatives and lessons learned from California and Maine. So we have a bit of a hybrid uh, panel for today. Our first speaker, um, the first 30 minutes, we're going to focus on global initiatives. And we're going to hear from Carbon Burbano, um, who will be um, coming, through, uh, coming to us through a Zoom room. And our lovely IT guy, Alex, over there is going to be offering a lot of support today, which we're very much appreciated. Um, and then next, we'll hear from Arlene uh, Mitchell, who is the executive director of the Global Child Nutrition Foundation. Then for the next uh, 45 minutes, we'll hear from Juliana Cohen from Merrimack College and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, followed by Wendy Gosliner from Nutrition Policy Institute in the University of California, and lastly, Laura Vollmer from the University of California. Then we'll have uh, 15 minutes for Q&A, and we do ask that when you do um, ha have your questions, if you can come to the microphone right here, just for everyone to hear, include, including Carmen, who will uh, be coming, will be able to hear um, much better when you use the microphone. All right, Alex, are we ready for Carmen? Hello, good morning, can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me, Carmen? Yes, perfectly. Great, okay. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm sorry I can't be there with you, uh, but I'm, I'm glad to be connecting uh, virtually from Rome, from the very hot city of Rome. My name is Carmen Bobanen, and I'm the director of WFB's school-based programs division, essentially schools and, and everything that has to do with uh, programming in schools. And uh, what I'd like to do today is, is give you a little bit of, a, of the context of how we look at the school meals panorama globally. And uh, we do that in two parts. One is um, a little bit of a, of a story of, of what happened during the pandemic at the global level and, and the, and the um, establishment of the school meals coalition as a result of that. And then I'll be sharing with you a bit of what we're looking at in terms of global numbers and the global state of school feeding, as we as we call it, um, coming out of a publication that we issue every two years together with partners. So the story that I want to tell you is, of course, you're no strangers to what happened during the pandemic. But from the global side, when uh, schools closed all around the world in 2020, what what we saw was very similar to what you all lived through in the U.S. Essentially, school schools closed, and most of the school meals programs around the world collapsed with them. So this wasn't just a, a phenomenon that was happening in some countries; it was actually generalized. Before the pandemic, we had calculated that about 388 million children were receiving meals in schools, and then all of a sudden, in the span of about one month or two months or so. The whole safety net collapsed, and by May or June of 2020, we were announcing that 370 million children had lost access to meals in school. And so, very similar to what happened in the U.S., governments around the world scrambled to see what they could do to retool their programs, to reach, to pivot their programs essentially, and provide meals to students in homes, or have a, a different mechanism to guarantee that children continue to receive meals. 
But around the world, the experience in 2020 and into 2021 was that even though countries did their best to ensure that children didn't lose access to, to meals, essentially a lot of children were left behind. And by the time 2021 came around, uh, there was a huge con conversation, um, a very big, um, I would say, concern from leaders all over the world of what was happening with this huge safety net that families had been relying on for so long. And so um, January or February of 2021, the Food Systems Summit was happening. It was a, a big conversation that, that started in early 2021 around what, uh, what can we do collectively and what can governments do to repair and restore food systems that by then were quite clear were collapsing. For various reasons, the pandemic, of course, was one of the reasons, but not only. Um, various, uh, various elements of the food system essentially quite, uh, quite clear uh, were not really serving to provide nutritious and healthy diets for all around the world. And the Food System Summit was established uh, by the Secretary General of the United Nations as a worldwide conversation of what really needs to happen to make sure that children and families and, and people across the globe have access to safe, nutritious food all year long. And in the context of that summit, uh, specifically President Macron and then later Minister Vileski Maria Finland and other leaders, including President Kagame of Rwanda, uh, President Makisana of Senegal, uh, the President of Guatemala and Honduras, and then um, more and more leaders, including Secretary Vilsack of USDA, came together in the context of the Food System Summit to figure out really how do we uh, come together on a call to action to governments all around the world to restore access to these school meals programs that had been lost during the pandemic. But it was also quite evident by then that these programs, and I don't think I need to tell you how powerful they are, are, are very powerful for food system transformation. If uh, paired with local purchase, for example, they could really be engines of growth locally, provide uh, markets for farmers that are, that are local, etc. And so it became a quite a fertile conversation within the Food System Summit of how school programs could be platforms for food system transformation. So fast forward to September of 2021, oh, September, uh, the School Meals Coalition was launched. And so what I just want to show you is a few slides um, of what the coalition looks like right now. It is one of the most significant or the most significant multilateral initiatives that have been launched, certainly the most important one from the emerging from the summit. At the moment, if we move to the first slide, here is the membership of the coalition. When it was launched two years ago, there were about 40 heads of state that had joined. We now have 85 countries that have committed to this global call to action. And um, as you can see here, countries from all income levels, so this is not just a, a, a global north or a global south uh, initiative. It's, uh, it's really a global um, phenomenon. Momentum keeps growing, and every day we have countries that continue to, to join, essentially, to make sure that children have access to safe, nutritious meals in school. Uh, the, the governments who are the members of the coalition are joined and supported by a huge ecosystem of partners. At the moment, we have 95 partners that have joined uh, in their commitment to support government action. And as you can see from this soup of, uh, of logos, it's really very diverse. UN agencies, the major NGOs, think tanks, research partners, um, 
ambition in the sense that this isn't just an education initiative, it's not just an agriculture initiative. It really cuts across several sectors, including social protection, health, nutrition, uh, finance, and others that are very much engaged from this variety of partners, but also at the global level, at the national level, from ministries all around the world. So now let me tell you, when governments join the coalition, what did they join? What did they say they were going to do? This took about four or five months of negotiation from in the context of the summit, and countries came up with this uh, big blueprint. The first goal, you know, when they, when they join the coalition, they join it with the objective of ensuring that every child has an opportunity to receive a healthy and nutritious meal in school by 2030. So it was, and still is, very much an ambition of universalism, of um, trying to see if we could work with all governments around the world to universalize access to these programs uh, in a few years. And then three specific objectives were set, two by 2030, but one which was a, a closer objective, very much tied to what was happening at that time, which was really restoring access to these programs that were lost during the pandemic. So that one was really, can we, uh, can all countries start opening up their education systems? And as they do that, how can they restore access to these programs? And then the second and the third one were really about, the second one more about um, the focus on low and lower middle income countries on how can we join forces at different levels, at different countries around the world, supported by different partners, to help them expand access to these programs because in those countries, coverage is really the lowest. And I will show you a little bit later why we mean that. And then the third one really applies across the board to countries like the US, but also countries like Malawi, Somalia, Bangladesh, and across the board, which is really how do we deliver on the potential that these programs have to be truly transformative solutions for community growth, for child development, for human capital development, et cetera, food system transformation. So there, there is continuous, uh, I think, understanding that although these programs have the potential to be all these, this wonderful, these wonderful things, um, there is a, a need to intentionally design policies and intentionally design the programs to be that. What do I mean by that? There is a, a need to intentionally uh, connect to local purchase, for example. There is a need to intentionally look at the menus and the nutrition standards to make sure that children are getting what they're supposed to be getting. There is also a need to intentionally connect with the health sector to make sure that it's not just meals that they receive in schools, but also other health services, including um, health screenings, including vaccinations, including fortification of food or supplementation, school gardens curriculum reform to make sure that nutrition is included in what children are getting taught. So there's a, there's, a, there's a whole kind of ecosystem that goes along with these programs, and it was quite understood that it, it's not just about the plate of food, it's about a whole ecosystem and a whole multi-sectoral partnership that needs to happen. So these are essentially the goals that countries have aligned to. So when they join the coalition, most of them at head of state level, they join with the intention of committing to doing this, to putting in place national pathways to make sure that these three goals and the big, these three objectives and the big goal are, are, are achieved. It is a very successful coalition. I think we want to show you in the next slide um, a short video just so you see what the ecosystem looks like in terms of the, the level of political support 
This is when the coalition was launched. As I said, since then, we have many more heads of state that have joined. Next, we will hear from another commitment to action, this time around a very important initiative that has attracted a lot of interest this past year, and a half against a backdrop of closed schools and lockdowns. I am delighted to give the floor right now to the School Meals Coalition. Finland has been actively promoting the establishment of the School Meal Coalition. Argentina ha adherido a la coalición de comedores escolares. El país atende a la mise en œuvre de cantines scolaires en privilégiant leur approvisionnement auprès d'acteurs locaux. The African Union Development Agency, NEPAD, has worked to facilitate an African economy position in advance of this summit with the following priority tracks. One, adopt nutrition food policies, establish food reserves, and expand school feeding programs. I am pleased that Kenya is taking leadership in the School Meals Coalition. The Agriculture for School Lunch Project is one of our success stories in addressing food insecurity and malnutrition. So it's the day of a safe, healthy, and nutritious school meals. Our support to the School Feeding Coalition. Guatemala se adhirió a la coalición de alimentación escolar. We need therefore support the coalition on school feeding and commit ourselves to achieving the goal. School meals. School meals. Y es que firmamos la coalición para la alimentación escolar. We are pleased to have joined the School Meals Coalition. The country of Luxembourg is particularly proud to join the School Meals Coalition. The establishment of effective school meal programs represents a smart investment into future generations as well as into more sustainable humanitarian action and development. We look forward to working with so many of you through the global coalition called School Meals Nutrition, Health and Education for Every Child to ensure that every child has access to nutritious meals in school by 2030. La principauté a annoncé son soutien à la coalition pour le repas scolaire, nutrition, santé et éducation pour tous les enfants. Coalition sur les cantines scolaires. Schools Meals Coalition. La coalition des programmes alimentaires scolaires. School Meals. School Meals. La France appuie également la coalition pour l'alimentation scolaire. We already support the school meal coalitions. Nous s'est engagé jouer un rôle prépondérant au sein de la coalition mondiale pour l'alimentation scolaire. I'm pleased to see many member states rallying around universal access to nutritious meals in schools. A great example of how social protection can support resilience, food security, and the rights of children and young people. Join us, sign the declaration, make your commitment now, and help the School Meals Coalition ensure that every child as a healthy, nutritious meal every day. Thank you for joining us today. All right, so that's what's happening right now at the global level. What I, uh, what I wanted to briefly share with you after, um, after this video, uh, let's go forward, Sandra, to, to the state of school feeding is just a global snapshot of where we are in 2022 because I've uh, I started telling you a little bit about what the world looked like uh, just during the pandemic and after the pandemic when these programs collapsed, the coalition was formed, 
And WFP issued uh, its, uh, its report, State of School Feeding Worldwide, in early, uh, um, earlier this year to capture what, what is now happening. This is the, the, the most recent uh, um, report that we have. It is produced together with a number of partners, and I'm glad to see that you'll hear from Arlene Mitchell next, because of course, GCMS and that global survey are a very important contributor to the data for this report. So where are we right now in terms of the best, uh, the most recent data that we have and what's happening around the world? Let's go forward to the next slide. At the moment, we calculate that 418 million children are receiving meals in school. So this is, compared to the 2020 numbers already, um, a, a, a sign that most of the programs essentially have been restored, although, of course, these are trends that we need to continue to map out as the years move forward. But you know, in, in terms of taking pictures of what's happening every couple of years, this is the, the latest information that we have. So um, very good news in terms of the ability of governments to restore access to the programs as far as we know. Let's move forward to the next slide. Um, a lot of the political mobilization uh, has also resulted in a very impressive increase in the investment in these programs. Globally, uh, right now, about $48 billion are being invested in school meals. This is up from $43 billion two years ago. So about $5 billion of additional domestic investment has been mobilized in the last two years. 99% of that uh, comes from domestic sources. So one of the things that I always like to say is sometimes uh, people think when, when I speak about this to uh, donor audiences or to international audiences, they, they think that this is a program that is supported by donor countries like the US and others, but actually the reality is that many countries like the United States are um, implementing their own programs for their own children. These are domestic agendas, domestic policies. Let's move forward to another piece of news in the publication is that, uh, as I was mentioning, 99% of the costs of the program are being borne by governments themselves. That's the left-hand column that you see there, the big blue um, slide, the big blue column. But if we break down the, the information by, by income level, we see very clearly that it's low-income countries that continue to need donor support. But even in those countries, from 2020 to 2022, the last information point that we have, low-income countries have increased the funding for the programs uh, from domestic sources, from 30% to 45%. And as you may know, uh, this, is, this is very tough period uh, for many countries, a fiscal crunch, a debt crisis on top of the uh, impact of the war in Ukraine and other things. And even during a very tough fiscal period, uh, countries have managed to not only protect, but also in many cases expand access to these programs with uh, domestic sources of funding, which is very impressive. Let's move forward um, on a, a zoom in from the data that we have in Africa, uh, because again, you know, some of the um, preconceptions of, of the African continent are that it's, you know, dependent on donor aid or that these are very little projects here and there. The reality is that this is a very large safety net, by and large, owned by governments in the African continent, close to 66 million children are receiving meals in schools. Again, a continent that has, by and large, restored access to these programs, uh, which is a very, very good piece of news for those of us that work in development. Let's move forward. The picture of investing, uh, investment in Africa is similar to the global picture in the sense that 
So again, debunking a bit of a mess that these programs in Africa are donor dependent and are not sustainable, etc. Very much not the case. Of course, if we break it down by income level in the African continent, again, we see that low-income countries are the ones that are dependent on donor sources. But even then, the trend continues that we do see an increase from 34% to 45% of domestic funding for the program. So even in um, a continent that is very much struggling uh, on very many fronts, uh, this is, this is a, a welcome trend of ownership by governments. And we're not surprised because uh, the coal, we see it in the coalition. We see the increase in government leadership and political will and commitment to make these programs universal. Let's move to another uh, snapshot of um, uh, another indicator that illustrates how much of a platform this program is for uh, you know, what ripple effects it has on the community. Job creation is one of the most important, um, uh, let's say, outcomes of this program. Four million jobs created, 1,077 uh, jobs for every 100,000 children fed. Most of this for women. These are catering mechanisms. Women in different countries are uh, coming together in catering companies, formal or informal, to provide food to children in schools. And in many cases, these are paid jobs. Um, very important factors, not just about feeding children, but how this ripples across the community. Then I have some information for you on how these programs are being institutionalized. This is, again, a very important indicator that tells us that this, these are not isolated projects across the world. These are government policies. And um, over the last two years, we've gone from 79% to 87% of countries having a school meals policy in place. What that means is it's either a law or a policy that is a national level policy that makes sure that these programs are institutionalized. So very important progress again. Uh, we see countries in the coalition making commitments to institute these policies. So again, these figures are not quite surprising, but again, in, a, in the context of today, um, it's, it's good news. Let's move forward to the last um, slide. One of the things that I get asked quite a bit is why are governments investing so much? Why has the School Meals Coalition been so successful at galvanizing the, um, the, the large amount of political support that it has? And this is the answer. It's basically, it's, it's more than a meal. And, and I think everybody in the room here knows that. Um, these are programs that are, of course, supporters of education, bring children to school, allow them to learn. Everybody knows that a child that's hungry can't learn. But um, it's, it's more than that. It's a safety net. Uh, families all over the world really depend on this, on their children getting at least one nutritious meal a day. There are also important connections to agriculture that I've already mentioned, and the issue of diets and dietary diversity, growth and development for children. We've, um, we've studied with Harvard University the returns to these programs globally are about one to nine. So for every dollar invested, uh, governments can expect to see about nine dollars in returns because of this, these additive benefits, these, these multi-sectoral benefits. Now, all of this is, of course, good news, and this is the reason why governments are lining up behind this program in such a successful way. But of course, the report and our messaging is not all rosy. Here's some of the, um, the not-so-good news. Coverage remains very low in low-income countries. So where children need it the most, particularly in the poorest countries in the world, even though these programs have been restored, of course, 
It's not even across the world. If you're in a low-income country, just 18% of children are receiving meals in schools compared to high-income countries where something like 61% of children have guaranteed access. Of course, this varies according to country and, and how the policy works, but the, the disparity is, is huge. And um, this is where international support and international aid is most needed. We see that also, um, we're very concerned that while governments and particularly low-income countries have stepped up their investment in school meals, it seems that donors not so much. So let's move forward and see, uh, you know, this is the same graph that I mentioned before where we see the jump in, in national investment but a decrease in, in donor support. So our priorities moving forward and working with the U.S. government through USDA and other partners and NGOs, um, as I mentioned also the Global Child Nutrition Foundation, is really working with countries and the donor community and the partners to figure out how we come together to help these low-income countries support access to school meals. I think that's it for my side. Uh, very glad that Arlene follows with more of a deep dive of what we're seeing in country. Hi, everyone. I'm very happy to be here with you today. Um, it's been great to spend a few days with you and to find kindred spirits everywhere I turn. Um, so I'm really happy to be here, and I want to thank Sarah Burkhart um, for helping me to get here. Sarah came to one of our uh, meetings similar to the meeting you're having now in uh, Cambodia in 2019. And, um, She's been a good ally and supporter ever since. So thank you, Sarah, for getting me here. And I love the name of your university, University of the Sunshine Coast. I, I hail right now from Seattle, and I think if we were going to call us a, uh, a university, we'd be the University of the Raindrop Coast, right? <laughs> um, I'll start with a little bit. Let me make sure I've got my clicker here. A uh, little bit about my organization, which is the Global Child Nutrition Foundation. We are a small nonprofit organization uh, that focuses exclusively on school meal programs. We're particularly interested in, um, in, in programs in low and middle income countries. We, in, um, we support government ownership and management of those programs. And we work to ensure that the food used in the program is nutritious and climate friendly. Wherever possible, we recommend that the, uh, structuring the program to create predictable market for local produce and to benefit smallholder farmers and their families. This is something that's called in the international context, homegrown school feeding. GCNF does not implement school meal programs. Rather, we support the efforts of governments and their partners to expand and improve programs. And we're interested in programs all over the world 
but uh, as I said, our main focus is on low and middle income countries. Our two flagship programs are the Global Child Nutrition Forum and our Global Survey of School Meal Programs. The um, Global Child Nutrition Forum has been the largest annual gathering focused on school meal programs in the world. It began 25 years ago, and this year is only the second year since 1998 that we've not offered a forum. And we are likely to, in the future, largely in cooperation with the coalition, to have the forum every other year rather than every year because of coalition activities um, in the year that we're not having our forum and vice versa. Uh, the forum is usually a four-day meeting. Um, it's designed for government leaders, usually program managers in their governments. Um, program staff of implementing partners, such as numerous NGOs and UN agencies that implement programs in low and middle income countries attend this, as well as a number of experts, private sector representative donors and foundation partners. Um, for the last 15 years, the forum has been held in a different country each year. This is kind of a map of where we've held it, which makes it really exciting to go to a different place each time. Um, last year it was in Benin in West Africa, and 44 government delegations, meaning usually there's usually more than one person from a country that attends, um, from all over the world came there, and they got to see um, the Benin program in action, and they got to share experiences peer-to-peer -peer and to take a close look at how their, their issues match up with other people's issues and to, and to seek joint solutions. Now I'll show you a few pictures from past forums. These four pictures are from the forum last year. The woman in the top left was our was our rock star. She came all the way from Fiji, which took three days in one direction and four, four and a half days in the other direction to make it to Benin and back. Um, but she was fantastic animated. She would be like you all, you know, with the rah-rah. Um, and she got us out of our seats, um, real, real cheerleader. Um, these four pictures uh, I'm sorry, these pictures are from uh, previous forums. On the left is uh, Tunisia, which was in, I think, 2018. The middle one is Benin. And on the right is uh, Armenia and Tunisia also. It's interesting. I, I must have mixed up my slides a little bit here. But um, the children on the left, both the top and bottom pictures, are in Armenia, their school. Um, nutrition education activities. And on the right bottom is Tunisia. The parents come with the children to the school garden. Um, we have a lot of fun in these activities. We also do cultural events, um, have inspirational activities. We make friends across countries, continents, and cultures, and have a lot of fun. Now I'll talk about the Global Survey of School Meal Programs. It was designed in 2017 and 18 to be carried out every two to three years and was first implemented globally in 2019. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has been a primary uh, funder of the program along with uh, other GCNF uh, supporters. 
the 2019 survey was quite successful. And then the pandemic hit, complete with school closures, distance learning, and all kinds of changes to the school meal programs. So this made the 2021 survey much more challenging. How could we capture all of those disruptions? Um, but we did, and we actually did better in 2021 in terms of the number of uh, countries participating. And we actually, believe it or not, got examples from most countries of positive things that came out of the pandemic that might have lasting, lasting impact on their programs, such as much more attention to hygiene in the schools. A third survey round is scheduled to start in November, so we're gearing up for that now. And in fact, we are recruiting for a Spanish speaker and for someone to help us focus, focus on Europe. So if you know anyone, let me know right away. The core parts of the survey every year, uh, or each round, are, are very similar. Uh, we ask participating governments to name a survey focal point who will speak for the government. And then we work with that person uh, to elicit survey responses. And we have a team around, scattered around the world with the right languages, et cetera, to interact with these focal points and support them to respond to the survey. The survey starts with a few questions at the national level and then it switches to a program level questions and some countries have more than one program. We've had countries that have up to four or five large-scale programs in their countries, so we, they have to do extra work to fill out the, the program section of the survey for each one of those. And then we wrap up the survey going back to the national level, and we include some narrative on things like successes and challenges um, that we, we, we don't think the survey would otherwise capture. Um, here you can see all the countries that have contributed data. Uh, all together, we now have data sets that contain extensive information on programs in 155 countries and, and over 180 different programs. The Global Survey is, has produced the most comprehensive and standardized information available on school feeding and associated activities. It covers a wide range of topics, as you see here. And the data is available to anyone who requests it and has been used in a number of publications. As Carmen said, it was used in the last two uh, uh, World Food Program State of School Feeding Worldwide reports. These are exam examples of, of country reports. Uh, these are, uh, uh, we produce for each country a report that summarizes in a standard format um, the data that we're getting from the country on key issues, and this makes it very easy to compare across uh, programs. Uh, turning specifically to nutrition, these are some of the questions relevant to nutrition and to complementary activities to school meal programs that we ask about in the survey. Um, they're not the only ones, but they, they, they probably capture the most relevant ones. So some uh, survey results related to, um, to uh, nutrition. Uh, you see in the top right that 72% of the countries reporting 
um, said that they have national laws, policies, or standards related to school feeding. Um, if you look at the objectives, 93% of the programs uh, report that they have objectives to meet nutrition and health goals. Um, another highlight is 87% um, say that they incorporate food and nutrition education. So this is the type of information that we can pull from the survey. Uh, a couple of other tidbits, uh, we find dramatic differences between the food items used in the menu school menus across countries. And in, as in the case of fruits and poultry, you see dramatic differences between low-income countries and high-income countries um, for fruits and poultry. There are other, other examples uh, along the same lines. We do find that when uh, the food is purchased locally, the, the uh, diversity of the food basket increases dramatically. Uh, we asked in the 2021 survey for the first time about beverages, and so I just included the beverage piece here. Uh, it's, it's an interesting challenge about sweetened beverages versus non-sweetened beverages, for example. Uh, a couple more survey tidbits. We ask about complementary uh, services and education, and you'll see the dark green bars at the top are education activities, and, and food and nutrition and hygiene um, are, are at the very top, um, followed by health and physical education. School gardens are pretty strong also. Um, and the, the lighter green bars below are uh, complementary activities like hand washing with soap is the leader, the clear leader there, drink clean drinking water, and, um, and deworming and weight measurement are also pretty high on the scale. But um, things like testing for hearing and testing for anemia, um, et cetera, are much, much less frequently offered. Um, we ask, um, what about the relationship between food and nutrition education and policies? And we did a little analysis, and we do see um, a, a, a fairly strong positive correlation um, for policies, and uh, particularly two of them, uh, the national school feeding policy and a health policy as linking pretty closely to those who have nutrition education. Now I want to switch to talk about talking about universal coverage. Um, what, mean, what, what does it mean to say that a program has universal coverage? Coverage can be defined in so many ways. Um, so for example, you can talk about primary and secondary school-aged children, which is what we do in our survey. We look at the full age range of uh, of uh, primary and secondary age uh, school children. You could only look at primary schools uh, and our primary school age children. You could only look at uh, enrolled students. So there are a number of ways to look at it and it will define for you whether or not you truly have coverage. So if we take, for example, coverage of primary and secondary school age children receiving food, um, if you take it by that criterion, only nine countries in the world um, achieve 90% or higher, uh, according to our, our, our 2021 survey. If you define it simply as uh, 
number of children enrolled in primary, primary school, um, then you get 30 countries that come to 90% uh, or higher. The denominator really matters, right? So, for example, in Sub-Saharan Africa, because um, in, uh, there are a number of out-of-school children, the, uh, the number changes dramatically depending on what denominator you use. So on the left, you have primary and secondary school-age children. That's 15% coverage if you take all children in that, in that age range, roughly 5 to 18. It goes up a bit if you, um, if you look at those who are enrolled. It goes up a bit more if you look at just primary school-age um, children. And you achieve about 26% if you just look at enrolled primary uh, school-aged children. So it makes a big difference how you are, how are you, are you um, determining your coverage rate. In Latin America, there's much uh, higher levels of enrollment, almost 100% enrollment, so you don't see an, a difference for out-of-school and in-school children, but if you look at primary versus secondary, then you find a very a big difference. So on the, on the um, left are uh, primary and secondary coverage rates, which hit about 55 to 57%. On the right is if you just look, look at uh, primary school um, age and primary school enrolled students. So. Uh, Universal also depends on, boy, it doesn't spell very well in this um, slide. It also depends on who you count. Um, so are you counting kids in private school as well as public school? Some countries have enormous high rates of uh, private school use. The Middle East, for example, um, UAE has very, very high uh, private school enrollment, and their national data doesn't necessarily capture those students. Um, you can also look at targets such as a geographical region, um, uh, a specific school, specific grades. You can look at children that meet certain criteria like poverty levels, etc. So who is a beneficiary also um, is really important to think about it. Um, in the US, we'll, and I'll, I'll mention that in a minute, it gets very complex to decide who is a beneficiary of a school meal program. Is it someone who just gets free food? What about reduced price uh, meals? Is it someone who has access to purchase food at school? Or is it just the ones that receive it um, for, fr for free or at a discounted rate? Um, so, so it, these things are hugely important, as you will see in the population counted in the United States. So on, um, if you look at uh, children who actually receive and use each school meals in the U.S. across um, the, the, the public school system, you'll see that roughly 57% uh, avail themselves of school meals one way or another. But if you just take low-income children who qualify for free or reduced, you're hitting roughly 100% of that population. So who you count, 
who was in the denominator becomes extremely important. And if you want to compare your coverage rate to someone else, you need to be comparing apples to apples. The numerator in the U.S. also uh, counts. So uh, back to this issue of uh, if it's available to purchase, even if you don't get it free, um, then, then the coverage rate um, can change dramatically. How you count that becomes extremely important. Who is in the numerator? And, and your answer might change depending on who you're trying to compare your coverage to. This is a, a quick, just uh, to show you how complex this is, this is a, de uh, a decision tree uh, for India. And, and if we look at all the factors in India, which has the, the biggest program in the world, 120 million children a day get school meals. And I'm almost done. Um, and a lot of those get it through private schools as well as, as public schools. Uh, different age ranges uh, are covered differently. There are a whole number of questions you have to ask yourself about coverage in India, and it makes a very large difference in, in your coverage uh, rate reported. So um, we're looking at possibly a different approach to measuring uh, coverage where we might look at every child who should receive uh, a meal via school. And I say via school because in the pandemic taught us there are a lot of occasions when you might need to, to send food home or have people pick it up rather than sit down at school and eat it. Um, and we want to compare that to the number of children who actually need um, uh, food um, through school. And you have a choice of d looking at that for all school days or perhaps all days of the year because we know summer breaks and school break, other school breaks can be very high hunger times. So if we look at true need, we, we need to look at being very honest about how we select our coverage um, information. So that's it. I'm very pleased to be with you. For more information, you can write us at info at gcnf.org. You can talk to me. You can go to our website. And thank you very much. Great, so thank you, it's a pleasure to be here today. Today I and my colleague, Dr. Wendy Gosliner, will be talking about the evidence around universal free school meal programs. And so I'll be sharing the results of one of our systematic reviews, and then Dr. Gosliner will be sharing the results of one of our studies specifically looking at state-level universal free school meal policies in Maine and California. So I'll be giving a very brief background around universal school meal policies and then discussing the methods and the results of our systematic review. And Dr. Gosliner will be talking about the results and lessons learned from our study in Maine and California as well as the next steps. 
So I think Arlene already did a fantastic job giving you some of the context around universal school meal policies, and specifically developed countries, OECD countries, um, with formal policies around universal free school meals. It's actually a very small number, as Arlene alluded to, which include Finland, Sweden, Estonia, South Korea. And then we also have England and Scotland, which have policies that enable their youngest children to re receive free school meals. Scotland actually recently expanded it to the first five years and have committed to expanding it universally. Japan is interesting because they have a universal policy, um, but it's not free. All children are required to participate um, with those from low-income households in able to get it for free. And then in the United States, we have an interesting case where we have high-poverty schools that are eligible to participate in um, provisions such as the community eligibility provision, for example, to provide all students within a high-poverty school or district with free meals. And now we also have state-level policies, which we'll be discussing. So I want to share the results of our systematic review. Um, this was using PRISMA guidelines, and we examined four databases. This included PubMed, ERIC, Thomas Reuters Web of Science, as well as um, Academic Search Ultimate. We examined all the references in the publications that we found, and then also looked at all the citations of those publications to ensure that our search was comprehensive. Our inclusion criteria included publications that were English, peer-reviewed, or government reports within countries with development, developed economies, OECD countries, um, that were conducted in elementary through high schools, specifically during the academic year, so not including summer meal programs, for example. And we also examined the study quality and biases using adapted Newcastle Ottawa, Ottawa scale. Very briefly, this is just to show you um, our process of finding the publications within the four different databases, removing duplicates, and eventually ending up with 47 publications and government reports that were included in our systematic review. So to very briefly discuss some of the outcomes that we were interested in. First was participation. So um, with universal free school meals, this may remove barriers to participating in school meals. Um, for example, removing the stigma associated with getting a school meal. Additionally, we're interested in the impact on children's diet. So what was the literature examining diet as well as food security? And the reason why universal free school meals could impact this is both directly as well as indirectly. So directly having strong nutrition standards, school meals may improve children's diets through the healthy foods offered, such as the fruits, vegetables, whole grains, etc. But there may be indirect benefits as well. So for example, some of our own research has found that when students eat healthier school meals, they're less likely to eat unhealthy foods outside of school. And this may be due to um, satiety, for example, from the nutrient-dense, higher-fiber school meals. Additionally, with universal free school meals, families may be saving money that they otherwise would have been spending to um, send their child to school with food. And so this can increase, increase the family's purchasing power, um, which can improve food security for the household and the child diet quality. So now looking at the results of the systematic review, the first thing that I want to highlight are the different colors that we have here. So what green means is that this is a study that was high quality, meaning had a low risk of bias. We have the orange color, which has a high risk of bias, and red indicates a very high risk of bias. So what you can see on the left, specifically focusing on participation, is that the overwhelming number of studies 
found that universal free school meals is associated with increases in participation. And you can see all the high quality studies, those in green, all show it's associated with increased participation. On the right-hand side, we have impact on diet and food security. And here you can see, again, the majority of studies found that a universal free school meal policy is associated with improvements in children's diets. And the vast majority of high-quality studies found that it was associated with improvements in children's diet. We also looked at the outcomes of attendance and academic performance. So first, thinking about attendance, First, students from low-income households may be motivated to attend school to access the food available, thus increasing attendance. But there also, again, may be indirect reasons for these improvements, potential improvements in attendance. So with improved nutrition, children may have decreased incidence of illness, which can improve attendance. Similarly, with academic performance, this can be influenced through direct improvements in nutrition. Our research and research of others have found that, for example, um, higher nutrient quality diets is associated with improvements in children's executive functioning, which is directly associated with academic performance. And again, indirectly, through potential increases in school attendance. So on the left, you see what is the impact of universal free school meal policies on attendance. And you can see it's kind of evenly split between having a positive impact um, as well as having a neutral, no impact. Interestingly, though, when you actually look at subpopulations within these studies, you actually find that there are greater improvements in academic in, um, attendance among those who come from low-income households and are more likely to be food insecure. So you do see greater benefits on average among the most vulnerable populations with attendance. On the right-hand side is looking at academic performance. And again, you can see that um, slightly more on average showed no impact. When you look at the high quality studies, it's kind of evenly split between those that have neutral, no impact, and those that found a positive impact on academic performance. Again, when you look at the subpopulations, those who are most likely to benefit are the children who are most vulnerable. And then lastly, I'm going to very briefly discuss the association between universal free school meals and child BMI. So there have been some concerns raised. Could this policy potentially adversely impact student BMI, particularly around breakfast? So there's a the concern if you provide free breakfast, what if a child is double dipping, having breakfast at home um, and coming to school eating a second breakfast? Like my lovely son in the back of the class, in the back of the room here, um, we recently discovered he was doing that, for example. <laughs> um, however, if healthier meals are provided by school, they may reduce the risk of obesity if they're replacing less nutritious foods with higher quality ones. So research has found that school meals on average are healthier than those brought from home. And again, our research has found that with increased satiety, healthy school lunch consumption may lead to reductions in consumption of less healthy foods after school. So what I want to show you here, again, looking at the association between BMI, universal free school meals and BMI, the vast majority of studies found no association. Universal free school meals was not associated with an adverse impact on BMI. And in fact, two high quality studies actually found a reduction in the risk of BMI. 
there was one high quality study that did find an adverse impact, but the overwhelming majority of studies found no impact or found a reduction in the risk. So what are the key takeaways from the systematic review? The vast majority of studies found that universal free school meals were associated with increase in school meal participation, um, as well as improved diet quality and food security among children. And also, on average, were associated with no change or improved BMI. So overall, and this part I think is really important, in the presence of strong nutrition guidelines, universal free school meals have potential multiple benefits for students in schools particularly those who are food insecure or near eligible. There's nothing magical about the cutoff that we have for who's eligible for free school meals in the United States. There are many households that are near eligible as well as many middle class families that are really struggling. And so this is something that I think is really important for us to think about in the context of universal free school meals as well. And so this is a policy that should be considered by countries not currently implementing this, as well as other states that are currently considering this policy in the United States as well. So now I'll hand it over to my colleague, Dr. Wendy Gasliner, who will tell you more about our research that we've been conducting in Maine and California where we have universal free school meal policies. Good morning, it's a pleasure to be with all of you and um, really fun to hear the um, conversation about universal free school meals in a global context. Um, my talk is gonna be very specific about what we're working with in the United States, but just out of curiosity, how many of you are coming from a state or a country where you do have access to universal free school meals? And how many of you are coming from a state or country where you don't? And how many of you know whether there are things happening in your state or country working towards having universal free school meals? Great, so it's quite a mix of us here in the room. So um, as Juliana said, I'm gonna talk about Maine and California. Uh, the data that we collected that I'm gonna be talking about was actually collected when the United States did have universal free school meals for all students in the 2021-2022 school year. Um, but we are continuing to study um, Maine and California as well as a variety of other states. We have about 10 states total now that we're looking at. Um, as universal free school meals is being implemented in more states and we're also studying states where universal free school meals are no longer available to be able to really look forward. Um, Um, so, as some of you may know, California and Maine happened to be the first two states to decide um, during the 2021 school year that um, they were going to continue to offer universal free school meals to all students um, even once the, the federal waivers expired. Um, so that's when we decided that we wanted to study those two states. Um, we have received money from the state of California to study California and then we've also gotten money from um, share our strength as well as a variety of other funders to continue to study Maine as well as other states. Um, and so we're, we've been working strongly with a number of partners in California. We're partnered with the California Department of Education as well as the coalition that has um, brought free school meals to California and in Maine, Full Place, Full Potential. It was awarded yesterday, both of those coalitions, which was great, um, as well as a variety of other partners. Uh, so I'm really gonna talk today mostly about data we collected from food service directors in 2022 as well as parents in 2022 in both California and Maine. We also did collect um, 
qualitative data from students in California in that school year and qualitative data from food service directors, parents, and students in all of, in all of the states, but um, those things I'm not talking about, so stay tuned. We have lots more information than what we're sharing here. Um, so just to tell you about the food service director, what we learned from the survey, we had about 592 food service directors in California respond, most of whom were nutrition or food service directors. Uh, we did have a variety of people in other positions. About half had been in their jobs for five years or longer, and 37% reported providing free school meals for all students before COVID, um, meaning that they had CEP or one of the other provisions. And it was very similar in Maine. While we had 43 respondents, it was a pretty similar percent of all the food service directors in the state that responded. Um, and similar in the first two, but you can see that there were fewer in Maine that were um, providing free school meals to all students prior to COVID. So we asked them about the barriers to meal participation. And again, this is in the context of providing meals free of charge to all students. Um, so one of the things that we heard um, food service directors thinking was a big barrier was students preferring meals from home or from elsewhere. And most of the things that we heard, interestingly, while Maine and California are very different states, um, most of the things that we heard were similar. So providing, um, preferring meals from home, students not liking the taste of the food, students getting tired of the options, um, often skipping meals, and then in California, we heard that um, one of the main barriers was friends not eating school meals. That didn't come up as a main barrier in Maine, but in Maine that students preferred to eat some of the a la carte options that weren't part of the, um, the school meal itself, um, and that did not come up in California. And then some of the least common things that came up as barriers from food service directors um, were that students or parents not understanding that the meals were free. There was some concern that maybe people didn't know because it was new, um, but that wasn't a big concern. Um, meals not meeting cultural or dietary preferences didn't come up as a key concern, though I'll share later what that looked like in California. Um, and students not having enough time to eat. Similarly, um, it wasn't a problem in the majority of places, but we know in places where it's a problem, it's a big problem. Um, and then that portions aren't big enough or that there's not enough food provided, that came up in Maine, but not as a big barrier in California. Uh, again, this was during the COVID year, 2021, 2022, when we were sort of just starting to emerge from the pandemic. Um, so we asked what people were struggling with, uh, really big challenges of this school year with um, getting both the food and the non-food supplies that people needed. So 88% in California, 91% in Maine reported not having the foods that they weren't needing or expecting, um, and a little bit less with the equipment and other things. Uh, most people were concerned about the financial sustainability of their programs. That was a big concern. Um, and then in one of the differences was that in California, there was a lot of concern about staffing. So 72% of people struggling with staffing. Um, and a, little, a lot of people also struggling with staffing in Maine, but less. Um, we're continuing to see this um, in many states. Uh, California is still really struggling with the labor portion of school meals. Um, so thinking about some of the benefits, and as Juliana presented, what are we hoping? And we've heard uh, internationally what we hope these programs will do. Um, and so in the United States, when we're starting to implement them, are we seeing those things? And the answer is yes. So what you're looking at here is um, these pie charts showing you that um, most food service directors were uh, inc reporting that participation increased, uh, a lot of them reporting that it increased greatly or at least slightly. So we are seeing a positive impact of uh, providing the meals free of charge to all students in terms of participation. 
And we are also seeing uh, a lot of reduction in stigma. So while about half of the food service directors didn't perceive stigma to be a big problem and not a big change, um, you can see that about a quarter in both states felt that providing the meals free of charge to all students uh, decreased stigma a lot and uh, about 20% slightly. So yes, we're also seeing these reductions in stigma in the US. Uh, and one of the challenges, of course, is how we track and we how we track income in schools uh, for a variety of reasons, including school meals. But uh, the income forms is a challenge. And so, 76% of respondents in California were very concerned about getting the income information. If you're getting meals free of charge, will parents complete these forms? Um, and 91% in Maine. And I'll share a little bit about um, parents' perspectives on these forms, but this is continuing to be a very big challenge as we're rolling out these programs. Um, and so then, I, um, as I mentioned, so when we look at like some of the things in California, we could see that while it wasn't necessarily a big problem for everybody, but that there were some splits where it's a serious concern for some and not at all a concern for others. So I just wanted to share some of the nuances of some of these perspectives from food service directors. So in terms of increasing student and parent complaints, while 47% of uh, respondents in California, these are food service directors, said it wasn't a concern, but about a third were concerned that they had a lot of increased complaints. Um, and when we looked at the cultural food preferences, um, while 41% of food service directors in California weren't concerned about um, meeting students' cultural food preferences, 41% said it was a serious concern. So um, while 41% didn't hit our threshold of calling it a main barrier, uh, it's a, that's a big issue. Um, and as I'll show you later, it also comes up with parents. You can see what that looks like. Um, so we asked about reimbursement rates and what we see here is most many um, don't think the meal and reimbursement rates uh, cover the cost of their programs and only about a third do. And then as we were hearing about from a global context and is also true in the United States, thinking about providing more local foods and what does that take and are we able to do that? Um, we asked both about the reimbursement rate that food service directors felt was needed just to do their program and then if they were gonna provide fresh, local, healthy, um, produce in particular, what, what would that look like and how much would it cost? And what you can see is Maine and California, um, the cost that food service directors felt would meet their needs um, was a little bit different in the two states, but the incremental difference to provide fresh local food was fairly similar in about, I think it was 40 cents or so um, per meal. So there's, a, there's definitely a feeling among food service directors that if, you want, if they want to provide fresh local food, it's gonna take a little bit more funding to be able to do that. Um, and then uh, finally with food service directors, uh, we asked about what they needed and the resources. So for any of you who are working with schools, um, some of the things that we were hearing people needed, uh, additional facilities and equipment. So 85% of respondents in California and 70% in Maine said that they needed additional uh, supplies and equipment facilities. Um, communications and marketing was a big issue for folks in terms of communicating about the programs. Um, many wanted support to increase meal participation. And similarly, um, making meals more appealing to students. So people were perceiving that students sometimes, as I mentioned, didn't like the taste of the food and um, wanted more support around improving um, the appeal of their meals. So I'm going to shift now and talk briefly about the um, findings from our parents and guardians. These were panels that were um, conducted 
Um, I actually only have the California data here that I'm going to talk about right now. So there's a, a panel of representative parents that were uh, represented geographically as well as by um, uh, school meal eligibility and um, race ethnicity. So it's mostly mothers who responded. Um, we had a predominance of people who identified as Hispanic and most of them spoke English, but we did conduct the surveys in English and Spanish. And food security, as you see, most people were either uh, very low food security or low, with 45% uh, who reported um, higher marginal food security. And most people on average said that their kids ate the meals about three days a week. So most people's kids on average were participating in the program. Uh, so again, in terms of the benefits of the programs, we see really a lot of um, positive reporting of the benefits, 82% saying that meals could save their families money, 80% saying schools could save, uh, school meals can save their families time, and 75% saying school meals can help reduce stress for parents. So this is across, as I said, a diversity of parents, um, the vast majority of whom perceive the meal program to be of high benefit for their families. Um, and not very many parents were reporting that um, their children were embarrassed to eat school meals, so this was very positive, not a huge perception of stigma, so it was only 20% that agreed that their child would feel embarrassed to eat the meals, and 18% agreeing that school meals are only for children um, whose families have low incomes. So we're seeing not super high levels of stigma. And the last thing that I'd, I have here is um, just asking about whether students like the meals and parents perceive them to be healthy. Uh, so those dark blue bars are parents or guardians reporting that the student usually likes the lunch. And the lighter blue is parents or guardians reporting that, the meal, that they perceive the meals to be healthy. And so what you can see here is that there are differences. Um, unfortunately, they're not, neither of those is super high, right? <laughs> um, but there, and then there are also differences by race and ethnicity. So um, in particular, Hispanic and non-Hispanic Asian families um, tend to perceive the meals as less healthy um, than white and um, black parents. And we did do, we have run statistical tests on this, and our sample, unfortunately, of black parents is uh, too low to find any statistical significance, so the difference is significant for white families and Hispanic and Asian families. So something, again, in California, we have a very diverse population um, and very important for us to be able to find ways to do much better with this um, and something that people are really working on. And that is it, so thank you so much. So hi all, my name is uh, Laura Vollmer, and I'll be rounding out our session today with a community-based perspective. So we've, we've sort of started globally, we've looked at two states that are early adopters of this policy, and I'll share a little bit about what this policy has meant and looked like um, in the communities that I serve. Um, I thought I would give just a tiny bit of context. So I'm a cooperative extension advisor or agent or professor, as I may be variously known in various states, uh, in various states, and I provide oversight to community nutrition 
education programs, including a CalFresh Healthy Living or SNAP Ed program, um, in addition to my extension portfolio. So um, our SNAP-Ed program, and I'm sorry, I should have said I serve three counties in the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area, San Francisco, San Mateo, and Santa Clara counties. Um, and our SNAP-Ed program has focused on supporting school meals, um, especially through farm to school efforts for many years. Um, but we've really sort of honed and refined that focus in support of the implementation of universal school meals. Um, and California's policy is particularly impactful in the very high cost of living communities um, that I serve, like the Bay Area, and I'm sure I don't need to tell you all that there were, we knew there were many more families who could um, benefit from free meals than were previously able to access them. And we had also seen a trend of declining eligibility as local minimum, um, minimum wage ordinances um, sort of took hold in the Bay Area, but we knew and saw and heard um, that even a wage of 15 to $20 an hour doesn't allow most families to meet their basic needs. So there was a ton of excitement and also nervousness um, about this policy. And I worked with our regional food bank, Second Harvest of Silicon Valley, and we leveraged that same year, uh, the transition when um, the USDA COVID waivers were allowing universal feeding to talk with food service directors about the opportunities and challenges um, they were experiencing. And so I'll talk quickly through those, um, what we heard in those interviews, and then how we are sort of connecting that work with SNAP-Ed and Cooperative Extension. Um, so it's interesting to see some of the similarities and differences um, from the statewide survey. And so the first thing food service directors told us that they were seeing was increased participation, and in some cases, really dramatic increases in participation. Um, they also told us that there was more socioeconomic diversity in who was eating meals, um, though many also noted that even in schools where there was already a high level of free and reduced price meal eligibility, they were seeing gains there as well. Um, and food service directors overall um, were just really sort of joyful about their ability to feed the whole school community. Um, and they saw this as translating into decreased stigma, and in particular, I think nearly every food service director I talked to said that they were so excited to leave the issue of meal debt um, behind. Um, they also shared some challenges, many challenges, um, as well as some worries too. Um, so something that we heard loud and clear were issues with uh, supply chain, um, continued to sort of plague food service directors. Um, they all had stories to share about orders delivered late at night, short, not what they ordered, and in one particular dire circumstance, there was a food service director who we talked to who was having um, to visit Costco <laughs> to ensure that they had the food they needed to cover to make it through the week. Um, staffing, as Wendy talked about, um, is a long-standing issue for us, especially in our region, but it had grown worse during the pandemic, and there were only a few districts that were fully staffed at any point um, during the 21-22 school year. And this was as participation was increasing, so they were expected to increase their production to produce more meals. And finally, I think it's interesting that this was not necessarily a sort of common issue. It very much is in the communities where I work, um, was the issue of time to eat or seat time. Um, so that really reached a boiling point, um, and longer lines meant even less time to eat for students, um, which was very frustrating for students, parents, staff. Um, this remains a sort of hot, hot button issue. So we also heard a lot in those interviews um, in our other interactions with school partners that we could build from, and 
opportunities to connect our nutrition programs with the school meal programs. And I do want to give the caveat that this work is very this work is very much sort of in its early phase. We're just getting started. But we know that as community workers, our nutrition educators have a tremendous opportunity here um, to help this policy achieve its promise. So food service and school partners identified a need for school meal promotion and nutrition education, especially since they had many students who were taking school meals for the very first time. So our CAFRESH team, our SNAP-Ed team, has long offered cafeteria taste tests as part of the Smarter Lunchroom Movement suite of activities. Um, but in the past few years, we've worked to offer these tastings more often and in more schools. And we've also worked to bring in partners so that we can reach full school districts. There are often, we have many districts where they're not all eligible for SNAP-Ed. Um, and these taste tests are a sort of low stakes way for students to try fruits and vegetables, um, get to know the school meals, um, and we've also started to use them to taste test entrees so that food service directors can get feedback. And one of our educators also had the brilliant idea to create the stickers that you see on the screen. Um, first, because of course kids love stickers, but also so that the information about the taste tests go home, a sort of soft PR about what's serv being served in the cafeteria, and because I think it can be a bit of a mystery what's happening <laughs> in, the, in the school day, as Juliana told us. Another thing we immediately heard was that, um, this is counter to <laughs> what Wendy said, um, was that families either didn't know or didn't understand that truly all children could eat um, free, free meals at school. And we heard a ton of confusion and questions um, about the school meal program and in particular about nutrition standards. Um, so our food service director partners asked us if we could develop some tailored resources. Um, and you can see what resulted on the screen. There's a parent and caregiver FAQ and a fact sheet that gets a little deeper into the nitty gritty, sort of more geared to folks like teachers and school administrators. Um, and our CalFresh Healthy Living educators were instrumental in developing these resources, ensuring that they were sort of at the right information and reading level, also that they were available in English and Spanish. And the sort of development process ended up being really useful because we found that many of our nutrition educators sort of only had a glancing understanding of school meal policy and the National School Lunch Guidelines, and it's very useful as their sort of community ambassadors for them to have that deep understanding of how this policy works. Um, in addition to reaching parents and families, um, food service directors also asked us for some help incorporating student voice in the school meal program. And we had been developing a strategy to work in the after school space to offer series-based nutrition and cooking education in support of cooking competitions. And so um, we have been able to expand the strategy. So um, we offer, um, education that where students learn about the school nutrition standards, they de develop and test recipes with input from their peers, and they ultimately compete for the opportunity to add a meal um, to, the, to the school lunch menu. Um, and this program we have found sort of also created an informal opportunity um, for food service directors and students to chat, and they have made some sort of small changes, and I think one of my favorites is that the middle schoolers demanded that the salad bar on burger days be rebranded as a topping bar, <laughs> and the food service directors tell us that that has increased take rate and um, consumption of vegetables. 
And then finally, I wanted to sort of come all the way back around um, to the, some framing that Carmen offered, um, which is the role that school meals can play as a driver and supporter of strong regional food systems. Um, and one way that we have been able to activate this concept is um, through the San Mateo County Farm to School Committee. Um, and this group includes food service directors, agriculture and food system nonprofits, um, growers, county government, and we meet on a monthly basis to do problem solving, um, identify shared work, lift up best practices, um, and this is really sort of where we drive most of our local procurement work. Um, I'll also mention that um, food service directors have really identified for us that staffing is an upstream barrier to both serving local fruits and vegetables and also to increasing scratch cooking. Um, and so they have asked us to give them a working group, which we, <laughs> we are currently meeting, um, to identify solutions. And we're looking at everything from things like service learning to policy changes um, to help overcome that barrier. And as I said, this is a region that has, I mean, sorry, this is an issue that has plagued our region for, for many, many years. Um, and we're sort of in the assessment phase now. We're in another round of conversations with food service directors. Um, and they have told us that in some cases it has been three plus years since they've had been fully staffed. So that's all that I have. I did want to sort of give a shout out to um, my school food colleagues on the ground. I think many of you who work with food service directors know this is a special group of people who is really sort of committed um, to serving kids. And I think we have time for questions. Thank you, everyone. Um, we have about seven minutes uh, for questions. Um, and I'd like to remind you, for the questions you have, if you can come to the microphone there. Our panel might be able to come up. Um, sure, that'll be great. And then also, Carmen is uh, had to hop off Zoom. So it's just the people um, here in person with us that you can ask questions to. And I'll step to the side. This may be a little bit like granular from the research that you did, but one of the things that came up a couple times was that you were talking about equipment. And in my experience, I used to work for a nonprofit that we would actually go into the kitchens and we would inventory because we had to bring in equipment. And I often say, um, working with SnapEd, that it's an area that we could potentially impact if we were able to provide equipment. So with all that said, um, did you s get a sense of what that equipment missing was? Was it was it knives? Was it mixing bowls? Like what what equipment exactly? Because like in SnapEd we can provide funds for smaller type of resources. So I was just kind of curious if you had any idea of what that looked like from the uh, food service director's pos um, position. Um, so in terms of the data that I was talking about, it's a great question. Um, we did not get that granular in our data collection about specifics about what the equipment is, though we have a lot of qualitative data from food service directors that I haven't read for that question, but we could. Um, but I, and my sense is that it's usually bigger equipment that they're talking about that they can get, you know, getting some of those smaller pieces of equipment is, is a little easier. And in California, there was a big push to provide equipment for schools, a lot of funding went towards it, but in the most recent state budget, it actually got cut back again. So, um, but I think they were more talking about big pieces of equipment. 
Yeah, sure. I'll just mention, I think, uh, so there's tremendous socioeconomic diversity in the communities yeah. where I work, um, and one interesting piece of context is that there were a number of districts that were not currently operating national school lunch. They believed that they had not one eligible child. Um, so for those districts, they had a really big job <laughs> to do. Um, and so they had to pop up a program overnight. I think for some of the districts, um, we had a local source of funding to support equipment and had done some work to try and outline for food service directors this kind of chopper will allow you to serve cut fruit, which is desirable for your students. So that was a sort of snap at activity to match up what are sort of easy to use pieces of equipment that promote fruit and vegetable consumption. And so I think that kind of thing I think is, is useful for food service directors. Um, and then just one last thing to add to kind of some of the research that we've done more broadly is we see a tremendous amount of variability. Um, and so there, unfortunately there's not one size fits all answer, which I think your question I think is incredibly important because we see the full spectrum where, for example, in Boston public schools, 60% of the elementary schools are not capable of preparing meals on site and we have a central kitchen um, that unfortunately you know, for various reasons, was not even being used, and they were importing prepackaged meals to many of these schools. Um, and then through some local grants, we were actually able to provide these what are considered non-functioning kitchens with combi ovens, and they were actually were able to start preparing them meals from scratch in many of these sites. And we see this across the United States, all the way to Anchorage, Alaska, where they have the exact same problem, where they've actually turned the cafeterias into gymnasiums in common spaces and actually removed the equipment, and now they're trying to turn back to scratch cooking. Um, but then we also are doing culinary programs in Massachusetts right now where it is the issue of we don't have the proper knives, we don't have the blender. Um, and so these are schools that are actively doing scratch cooking curriculums and saying we don't have you know, specific pieces of equipment, and it varies so much across the schools. But I think your point is incredibly important, and kind of that needs assessment for schools to determine what would it take for them to be able to prepare these scratch meals. I'm from Michigan, and we just had our governor sign last week, Universal Free. I just wanted to ask you, though, uh, in the two that you studied, Maine and California, how secure is that program? You know, is it in a statute? Is it year-to-year -year budget? What, how is it, how secure is it? Is it going to change in a year? And then school food service directors become debt collectors again, which is what I've heard a lot of in the last year in Michigan. I mean, as far as I understand, everyone's really feeling some insecurity, even in the states where it feels like it's secure. So California has committed, technically, to continuing the pr program. However, it's, it is still at the whim of the governor and the legislature. So I think there's, even though there's a full commitment that this is permanent, um, that there's some uncertainty. And Julianne, I'll let you talk about Maine and some of the others. So Maine also has, the, the way that the law was passed, it was passed as a permanent provision, um, which is what we're seeing in many states. Um, Vermont was originally passed as a temporary provision. They recently passed it as a permanent one. I'm from Massachusetts, and I was at the State House last week testifying because we still have a temporary provision. Um, and it's unsure if it will become permanent, unfortunately. Um, you know, until it is a federal policy, there's always that level of uncertainty, but I'm very grateful that states like California, Maine, and other states like Michigan that are leading by way of example with these type of policies. 
from Nebraska. We do not have universal meals, unfortunately. Um, but curious to hear if the projected budget or the projected amount was on point or if that has been exceeded. And then two-part question with regard to unpaid meal debt with like seconds and a la carte purchasing, have they seen those increase and is that still causing challenges or problems from a collecting debt standpoint? Um, so to answer your first question, you don't wanna know the answer. <laughs> Um, so unfortunately, um, I can speak, for example, from Massachusetts, and I know some of the other states, um, for example, ran out of money halfway through. Um, so Wendy alluded to something really important, which was these um, free and reduced price forms. And some people may be wondering, why do we need to fill these out if it's free in the state? And this is to get the federal reimbursement. Um, and so some of the major challenges we've been having is that parents who are eligible are not filling them out, and therefore the state, which was not anticipating having to cover kids who are free or eligible, now have to um, pay for, for the cost of that. Um, and so that has been one of the major issues is the cost. I will say that we are about to publish an AJCN um, in about two weeks showing that that's only one piece to the puzzle. In fact, there's, we have evidence, our research suggests that um, states can be saving millions in healthcare costs if we think beyond tomorrow and we actually think about long term. Um, so we've been doing some um, health effectiveness modeling and showing that in fact there's tremendous amount of cost savings when we think about that as well as I think what Arlene was talking about which is really important, um, some of the work by the School Meal Coalition including run by Dr. Um, Stephen Gay at Harvard University looking at that cost modeling and thinking about the impact on agriculture and um, opportunities for additional employment, et cetera. Um, I apologize, do you, before we move to the second question, do you have anything to add? Remind me, I'm sorry, real quick, what was your second question? So with regard to unpaid meal debt, um, uh, you know, if they're receiving their initial yeah. meal at no cost. So interestingly, um, I'm doing a separate study which is looking at competitive foods across the United States. Um, and we actually struggled to find um, schools in California that were still selling a la carte. Many of them said, we don't need to. Most schools that we talked to said, we don't want to be selling a la carte. The, they recognizing it competes. Sometimes it's not the food service director and it's the principal, et cetera, selling these as well. Um, but many of them said, we're not, we don't need to sell them anymore. Um, and in fact, what we're actually finding with school meal debt, um, which is just a very quick aside, um, is that states that have de-implemented their school meal debt has tripled in many places because of confusion around that the fact that the school meals are no longer free. Additionally, some states like Maryland have passed laws saying um, you must provide a full f school meal if um, even if a child can't afford, which makes is you know makes a lot of sense. But this has led to the school meal debt. Um, they were talking, I was talking with a school that said in the past it's been 20,000, this year it's 120,000, and the school year's not, and this was before the school year ended. Um, and so, generally speaking, what we found is that the school meal debt issue has been eliminated in universal, states with universal free school meals, and has now been exacerbated in states without it. Thank you very much, and I just uh, really appreciate your response and the sense of thinking about the cost savings, even though the initial projected amount was exceeded. Thank you. I just want to add 
one thing quickly to those of you, who, a few of you raised your hands as being in states where you're working towards universal meal policies. And we're collecting data now for this school year, um, or the one that just passed, um, across the country. And we've only dug into a very tiny bit, so this is so preliminary. But just to say, we've spoken to some food service directors in states where they did de-implement, and to Juliana's point, I mean, people are very frustrated with that. And so we've t spoken with people who were not supporters of universal school meals themselves as food service directors prior, who are frustrated now. So just to say that if you've worked with people in the past and you're thinking forward and like I've, I've hit barriers, that there may be a time window right now where you have a lot of people who were not supportive in the past who may have changed their minds and you might want to reach back. Um, and one very last quick point. I'm, I know many of you are in different roles, but um, one of our colleagues, Anzi Hecht, wrote a really nice publication kind of documenting how these policies were passed in Maine and California um, and the different things to consider, the different um, key players, et cetera, and kind of a formula, in a sense, for potential passage in other states. And there's other really good resources out there for those who are interested. Great. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. That concludes our panel, but I would like to do one more round of applause for our fantastic panel. Alex RIT and Dr. Julia Conan-Sen, who's been a fantastic uh, participant today. Thank you.